Welcome to the Upland Nation podcast. I'm Scott Linden, your host. Thanks for joining me. Should be an interesting discussion. Ben Jones will be joining us the last time he was here. He was shaking things up during the pandemic at the Rough Grouse Society and the American Woodcock Society. Let's see how things went there. Some massive changes in personnel, strategic direction, and uh, let's find out how they coped with the whole pandemic and the lack of banquets and that sort of stuff. So he'll be here to bring us up to speed. We'll also talk about some of the important issues to you from the preliminary results of my annual Upland Nation survey. And we'll take you public hunting in Kansas. I've got a spot there that I sure love and you might want to take a look at as well. So we're snowed in here, kind of, sort of, to a, well, to a great degree. Let me put it that way. But luckily, um, the wild quail population just back over there behind the place is doing extremely well. And so I'm able to get Flick out on birds on a regular basis. Been helping those birds in various ways the last couple of years, and it sure paid off. I'm so grateful that Mother Nature took pity on me and my dog training needs and and put those valley quail where they need to be. Flicky's doing a heck of a job just yesterday. In fact, I couldn't find him, and luckily I, I don't turn him loose without that GPS collar anymore. The, the brush is so high back there that I can't find him no matter how close he is. And sure enough, he was only 19 yards away. But he was on point. And so I moseyed on up. Uh, he was on one side of that sagebrush. I was on the other. And two valley quails squirted out his side a little bit over the fence and into the yard where, well, they lived to tell about it. We moved on from there, but he was steady to wing. We didn't take a shot, let alone a fall, but uh, did that. And then he uh, reprised the same performance a couple times later in the afternoon on our second walk. So uh, thank you again, Quail, for being so cooperative. Looks like you all are getting out and doing the real thing. One thing I'm jealous about, it seems like every picture I see does not have the snow on the ground that we have. We'll survive. Don't worry. Uh, a lot better than a lot of other kinds of weather that you've put up with over the years, and, well, so have we. Hey, have you taken the survey yet? Uh, if you got the uh, last um, email from me, then you know that we're doing that annual survey. It's about 30 questions, a little shorter than usual, but way important on a number of issues, and I'll be covering those soon. But the first one is always the most important one to everybody. Which dog breeds are the most popular among Upland Nation citizens? Yeah, and yeah, of all the breeds out there, and that list is really long, of all the breeds out there, perennially, it's short hairs and Labradors, almost neck and neck. Right now, about 25% of you own one or the other. We'll have more details on that as the numbers firm up. I know, it sounds like an election night 
news reporter, but but no, but the numbers will uh, continue to change a little bit here and a little bit there in the next few weeks. So uh, stand by for more on that, more issues later in the podcast, including the most important stuff that you want us to do as a community of bird hunters. So stand by. We're all made possible by Sage and Breaker Gun Care Products, Pointer Shotguns, Mid-Valley Clays and Shooting School, True Lock Choke Tubes, and FurFeathersFriends.com. Yeah, we're still in business there, doing everything I can, and you are doing everything you can to take somebody hunting and show off your dog. That's the best way to do it. Yeah, dogs are way better ambassadors for the hunting community than you and me and most of us put together. Well, maybe you saw this episode of Wing Shooting USA on television. Uh, If you didn't, you really ought to go back and watch it at the YouTube uh, channel or uh, stand by for quarter three of next year when I will... Uh, I will re-air this one on Outdoor America and our other programming partners. Osborne, Kansas. Just think about that. Osborne, Kansas. Kind of over there in the, the west west half of the state, if you will. And uh, I was lucky enough to visit that area with uh, some folks who became good friends, a biologist or two, and the guy who actually runs their walk-in hunting access program weha they call it out there it's growing by the year they're getting lots of uh new acreage and and frankly uh really good acreage the habitat over there in that area in particular near osborne is is high quality habitat and that's uh kind of the key lots of it and high quality osborne kansas mainly bob white's there may be a uh, rooster or two. I know I missed a couple on the show, uh, but mainly Bob White's out in that country. So if you're looking for a place to hunt quail, that might be it. The joys of Kansas, of course, uh, your license is good for 365 days if you're a non-resident. And there's a four-bird pheasant limit. So um, on top of that, if you're looking for someplace maybe a little warmer to go late in the season, consider Osborne. Kansas. Thanks again to Mid Valley Clays and Shooting School. They have got so much going on there. All winter, of course, you can shoot clay targets, but if you are also trying to come up with a reason to um, shoot better, maybe it's a new Browning shotgun. Learn more about their line of Brownings at Mid Valley Clays. Yeah, they've got a kind of a special relationship with Browning. If you can't find the gun you want anywhere else, give them a call or take a look at midvalleyclays.com. Dave Fiedler has the, has the direct line to the guys at Browning who might be able to find you. That Featherlight to Satori double gun or any of the other auto loaders they have available. And if you are so inclined, a pump gun from Browning will probably last way longer than anybody's lifetime. MidValleyClays.com. And I've told you before, and I'll tell you again, it has changed my shooting ability dramatically. Yeah, 
TrueLockChokes.com will show you all the reasons good choke tubes can improve your shooting ability. Yeah, if you've ever patterned your gun, you know what I mean. There are holes in that pattern, and some of those holes are bird-sized or almost bird-sized, and that's how you miss. Well, one of the ways you miss. Uh, I miss in a lot of other ways as well, but you can learn more about the materials they're using, the manufacturing process, the engineering that goes into these things. It's all at truelockchokes.com, and I'm spelling truelock, T-R-U-L-O-C-K, truelockchokes.com. Well, it's been a while since we talked. In fact, it was a, well, it was crazy crazy it was right at the very beginning of the pandemic and everybody was basically shutting down but lots to cover in terms of getting caught up in that regard ben jones the president and ceo of both the rough grouse society and the american woodcock society joins me ben welcome back to the upland nation podcast good to be back scott great to great to be with you hard to believe it was that long ago in the middle of all that mess which now i guess was two years behind this but yeah good to be with you yeah you know in a lot of ways i'm glad to think it might be ancient history uh, but it wasn't that long ago and, and you've got a lot to you know bring me up to speed on there but let's talk about the important stuff first uh, you've been hunting much i have been hunting some so i've got a uh, my dog power right now is two setters and we were out in northern minnesota so this was the 40th year of the Rough Grouse Society's National Grouse and Woodcock Hunt. And that's a gathering. It's about 100 hunters, and these are some of our biggest supporters over the years. We actually have people that have been there for all 40 wow. years. Wow. So it's, it's cool for me to, uh, to be where I'm at and go and hunt with those folks who have been here for, you know, through it all. And so we were out there at the National Grouse and Woodcock Hunt, which is uh, some work but also some hunting mixed in. It was very good. Uh, I stayed an extra day there, and then uh, on the way back, had planned to hunt in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, and they got just a monster of a storm came off of Lake Superior and dumped about eight inches, depending where you were, eight to about 15 inches of snow on the UP. Yikes. So the, the return hunting didn't happen, but I made it back home to Pennsylvania and have been out here a couple days in some woodcock covers and a couple days and some grouse and woodcock covers and plan to do some more over the next couple weeks well i have so many fond memories of that that chance i had to make a show out there at the national hunt it was incredible and i want to thank terry wilson at ugly dog hunting for making that possible back in the day terry's still very active in your organization uh, and uh I'm glad to see that. Uh, well, you know, you guys do some basic science when you're out there with that many hunters and that many, I forgot what we call them now. We don't call them guides, but, you know, our escorts in that area. Everybody's yeah. doing some record keeping on that. What did you learn this year? Yeah, it's so neat. And it's one of the longest running continuous data sets out there of its kind. So of all the birds that are killed uh, grouse and woodcock were collecting biological data mm -hmm. uh, sex age weight of the birds so it gives you a pretty good insight over the years 
of what you have for recruitment of young. And one of the most interesting things to me is where do the wood, grouse and woodcock kind of play out as far as who's who's winning mm. uh, as number of bird finds and last year it was probably three to one woodcock over grouse and we had people last year that had 80 woodcock days wow i mean that many finds and this year it was completely flipped the grouse stole the show and there were great grouse numbers about three to one over woodcock so that's always pretty interesting and then um, we also get into a look into the biological term recruitment so how many young of the year birds and we were right where we would expect to be for that ratio of adults to juveniles this year so things looked really good for grouse this year and the thing with woodcock wasn't that necessarily that woodcock are down it's just that timing thing in the middle of october of whether you're hitting them or not last year we clearly were hitting a flight yeah, it, and, and just for those of us who aren't real woodcock uh, hunters, that that is so dependent on something that happens farther north to a great degree, isn't it? It's dependent on so many things, and this is one of the – there are so many neat things about woodcock, but this is a really fun one within the circles of woodcock hunters. It's always this, you know – where are the flights? Oh, this is the full moon. We got a wind in this direction. Conditions are the side. They're coming. They're going to be here. They're up north. They're down south. We uh-huh. missed them. We're waiting for them. And it's just a lot of fun to think through it because there are a lot of factors. And you know, you never really know. And I saw a quote one time, it's just woodcock are where and when you find them. Yeah, yeah. And there's really no way to predict it. But, man, when you go out one day and there's hardly any, and the next day they're bouncing up like popcorn it's just it's a special thing well you guys get so excited about it and i was again it, it was driven home when i was out there um the last time you get pretty excited when you just hear a stinking flush you don't even need to see the bird let alone shoot at it <laughs> uh, but of all of the highlights of of that hunt out there um i, I know my, one of mine was uh, finally bagging the elusive alder branch Mm. Um, you know how hard that can be sometimes when you're when your swing is so cluttered by things like birds getting up in front of you but what about you what was the highlight of your hunting at, uh the hunting part of that event for you it's always the time you get to spend with the people yeah it really is you're in a room with 150 other people who love this thing as much as you do, but for maybe slightly different reasons. But that core passion of loving the uplands, the dogs, the bird, and the one thing about Rough Grouse Society supporters and members, if you look across all conservation groups, they really understand the need for active management. Yeah. Because Ruff and Woodcock numbers are just so closely tied to forest stages that can be influenced by management. So our people really understand the need for management and coming together to support RGS for the love of the birds, but the understanding that we've got a lot of work to do on the habitat side. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. We will delve deep into that, of course, as well today on the Upland Nation podcast. Uh, But first, how'd your dogs do? Well, I have a, a young setter who's, she's two and a half. She's in her third season. And she's a way better dog than I deserve. She just, 
She's just a wonderful little setter. She weighs about 34 pounds. She's black and white. And um, she's she's just a really nice dog for me. She, she moves through the woods. She's just like a wisp. She's just like water. She does all the things, man. She's a she's a really nice little dog. So the dog work is fun. And my old my old boy, he's eleven, and uh, so that's he's on uh, more than semi retirement. Mm-hmm. We've got to be careful with that old boy because he's still loved by a lot of people at home. We we can't get him we can't get him bound up or hurt. Oh, I I know the feeling. In fact, this weekend I'll be out with a friend of mine who's got a twelve year. We finally sat down and did the math and realized he's a 12 year old labrador and mm. uh, and he moves like it but he but we nobody can leave him you know if you leave him in the truck he'll just tear the truck apart so wow. so he just trots alongside does your guy at least cover some ground and and deliver a bird once in a while well here's the thing with him i had him on the ground the other day and i've got some uh bob white on our place here just from birds i've released for training there's mm-hmm. a little hanging out and so I turned the old boy loose. He only has one speed <laughs> and he just rips and tears. And then we're coming back and I'm like, are you even going to make it to the house? He, so he's, there's no walk along speed for this dog. And that's why it's like, man, should I even bring him? Cause I know he's going to push it to the absolute limit. <laughs> oh yeah. In fact, you, you mentioned off mic, we were talking about the temperatures and you know, they get above, I always worry when they get above 50 degrees because my dogs mm. have always been the same way. I get the same dog from the same line and, and there's, there's on and there's off and there's nothing else. Yeah. Gotta yeah. Be... And with the warm temperatures that we've had here in the East, um, I, I worry about that way more than cold because it just seems like things can happen like heat stroke with very little warning. If a dog's getting cold and you know, there's some, in, in my mind, better signs of hypothermia and things to watch out for, but it just can be so sudden when you're running them in that heat for them to get past that point. Yeah, and and we all, you know, the fundamental problem, and I've, I've, you know, I I open a lot of seasons in South Dakota where the temperature, well, this year, for example, it was eighty-five degrees by mid-afternoon. Wow. Um, and and so on top of all the biological motivations, there's a fundamental conflict because we're all out for the first day or the first week of the season, and gosh dang it, don't we want to do it? We want to keep doing it. And and that that'll really really bother a dog. I mean, and I'm, I'm being diplomatic. I was out there the year they killed 200 dogs on opening day. Oh my gosh! Yeah, it, it was scary. But uh, yeah. but enough about that. You know, let's talk about the good stuff. Um, when we talked last, just to just make sure I got this right, first thing you you were doing at that point, number one, was trying to figure out how to how to cope with uh, basically no banquet income. Second mm-hmm. thing was uh, a, a fundamental restructuring of uh, who's doing what where. So so bring us up to speed. What is what's the latest from the Rough Grouse Society and the American Woodcock Society? Well, at that time, we had real we bared down, and we knew things were going to be disruptive. And we set a goal, and we wrote it down that, however long it took or whatever happened, we wanted to come out of the pandemic 
in a better position and stronger than when you entered. Mm-hmm. And so for us, um, you know, there was a, there were a lot of shocks to the system, but we wanted to stay proactive and stay on our feet as opposed to hiding under the desk and kind of waiting for the storm to pass. Yeah, yeah. And so we were already looking at a business model restructure before all that happened. And so with it being such a disruptive time, it's also a decent time to make fundamental changes like that if you've got to make them because everything is so disrupted anyway. So um, we went in with the goal to come out stronger than we entered. And looking back on it two years later, that's absolutely the case. And the business model shift that we had, and Scott, I've been in forest wildlife management for almost 25 years. And we've got, especially with forest wildlife and rough grouse and woodcock, we've got 60 years worth of really good data telling us what we need to do. Mm-hmm. The biology is there. I call it actionable intel. The challenge over the couple decades I've been in this game is always how do you get that work done? And for grouse and woodcock, as I alluded to earlier, it's forest management. Yeah. And so along with that come a lot of things with logistics and economics, because when we're doing habitat work for grouse and woodcock, it's a little bit different than agricultural management where we're paying commodity producers to take a product, a row crop off the market to make habitat. Yeah, CRP or the opposite. Sure. When we're doing forest management, that puts a commodity product on the market. Yeah. So when we need to really think about forest markets and what they mean, because ultimately, in my experience, our ability or inability to manage habitat for grouse and woodcock depends on forest product markets. So this is, we've got really good biology. The challenge is in implementing the forestry. And those are two different experience and skill stats. So where we shifted was let's focus on having staff and having expertise in-house in this forestry side of things, people who are uh, steeped in forest economics and harvest logistics and know how to come up, overcome all those bottlenecks to do what 60 years of biology is telling us we need to do. So it was in 2020 that we made a shift from our regional biologists staffing over to our regional forest conservation directors. And we were recruiting for those skills that I just mentioned. Yeah. And we've got all those seats filled at this point. And um, it's really working very well. That's uh, Ben Jones. He's the president and CEO of the Rough Grouse Society and the American Woodcock Society. I'm Scott Linden. You're listening to the Upland Nation podcast. You know, I live in the Pacific Northwest and have for most of my adult life. And so, uh, uh, you know, seeing a log truck or seeing a chainsaw shop, they're kind of natural around here. They used to be a lot more natural, but uh, the idea yeah. of cutting down trees as a way to improve habitat for a lot of people is kind of counterintuitive. But but as you say, Ben, you know, it it is to a great degree about creating a different kind of forest out there for those two birds. Um your members buy into that. What about the rest of the conservation community? Have they understood that? Do they do they get it? The rest of the conservation community does. Yeah. Um, there's this whole other piece, though, 
uh, of I just I guess just call it the general public where it is an intuitive to say uh, especially now when we're talking about mitigating climate change and carbon sequestration and how important forests are which they are for so many reasons to say well we need to cut trees well if forests are important why do you need to cut trees so that's not a real you know in today's kind of social media bullet point you got five words to get the point across it's tough to have a nuanced conversation about why we need to cut trees to keep our forests healthy and to keep them diverse in age class and species and all that so that's a real challenge with kind of this 80 percent of the public that's out there that doesn't lean either way mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but our message doesn't make as much intuitive sense as what they're hearing from some groups that are on the anti-management side. So that's a challenge for us for sure. Well, so so what is the, I mean, what's your response when somebody says, you know, hey, save the planet, leave the big trees standing and, and go away. How do you respond to that? Well, you do have to make time to have that conversation. For 60 years, the Rough Grouse Society has been based on the tenets of managing according to what the science and forest management, wildlife management tells us. And clearly, the science tells us that we need diverse forests. And this isn't just for wildlife habitat, but it's also for forest health, resilience to disease, migration corridors for wildlife, carbon optimization, all those things the science tells us are optimized when we have a forest of many age classes. And if you look at where I'm looking out my window right now in central Pennsylvania and across the east into the northeast, we have an unnaturally single-aged forest, largely because of everything that happened, give or take a few years of 1900. It was all over-exploited in the past, all cut to the ground, and then it all caught on fire. And now today we have what one of our forest conservation directors calls a sea of same. Yeah. It's unnaturally single-aged forest. And we can diversify those forests, but it takes active management. So let's talk about the active management thing, Ben, because th- this is, uh, I, th- I think, one of the, one of the you know, keystones of your, your new, um, I don't know what to call it, uh, initiative policy f- philosophy, for that matter. <clears throat> what, mm-hmm. are, what are these new guys doing in, in your staff, and how are they doing it? Yeah, so, you know, and I've been at the Rough Grouse Society for just a little bit over four years now, and I refer to it uh, quite affectionately as the 60-year-old startup. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. And there are these things that benefit us from 60 years, like, the reputation for being based on sound science. And we have always advocated for sound forest management. And then there are other things like business model shifts that we're making right now that are more like a startup. Yeah. So it's like we've got the best of both worlds. We've got the support of 60 years and the reputation. We're also nimble enough to make some changes in our business model. So we've always been strong advocates for, for forest management. And what we're finding with these new skill sets is their ability to identify those bottlenecks and work through them. And there are a couple numbers that speak to how the model is working out. I ran in mid-2021, 
So those folks had been on anywhere from six months to 14 months. Mm -hmm. In mid-2021, I was looking at our funded agreements and what we had coming in dollars-wise for on-the-ground habitat work. And I said, well, that's, there's a lot coming in right now. So I ran some numbers back to 2015. And averaging from 2015 to about 2019, we had brought in about $450,000 per year for direct on-the-ground habitat work that mission focus work. In the third quarter of 2021, we had already secured four and a half million. Wow. About, about 4.3 million. So we had a 10X increase in funded agreements. And the key, I mean, we're talking about dollars, but no margin, no mission. <laughs> so <Yeah>. those dollars <laughs> are equating to habitat. And when I look at the numbers now, and I, I presented these at the National Hunt a few weeks ago, we're at about $9 million right now in funded agreements to do this work on the ground. And a lot of that work is being funded through the value of commercial timber sales. So um, the model is really working. And when we project out to the end of 20 2023, we could be as high as $20 million in those funded agreements and pushing 200,000 acres of ongoing habitat work. Okay, so just um, if I'm going to try and fashion an analogy for pheasant hunters, for example. Um, okay. pheasant, pheasant hunters are, uh, you know, <clears throat> that organization that we know and love um, mm -hmm. would be <clears throat> going to the farmer <clears throat> and mm -hmm. saying, let us help you manage that corn. Um, we'll do a better job of it or in ways than you, perhaps. And let's, we'll split the proceeds. Am I close when it comes to forest management and, and you folks? I think this is where the, we can talk about the differences between agricultural systems and yeah. where we're working. So with the farmer and the corn, and our friends at Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever have an amazing business model. There's mm -hmm. nothing like what they do on the planet for doing conservation and ag systems. So they're working largely through the farm bill, mm -hmm. which is the well-funded program, CRP, many other things that everyone knows. And so they're going to that farmer and saying, I'll tell you what, we can't make the row crops work um, for habitat as well as we can if you enroll that for 10 years in a conservation program and we restore it to native grass for a 10 or 15 year period. So we're paying them to take that commodity product off the market. Right. Now let's flip over to the forest side. We're approaching a landowner and saying, you've got this product that is of mature enough age to be commercially marketable. We'll work with you to do a good forest management plan and to harvest it in a sustainable way. It's not going to take... Um, farm bill dollars mm -hmm. we're going to harvest that wood it's going to put a commodity product on the market and you're going to get revenue in that way and the habitat is going to be created now i hesitate with to say it doesn't take farm bill dollars because we do actually incorporate some farm bill dollars into things like invasive species management for forestry so we do even tie some farm bill into our forestry work as well but we're going to them and saying you've got this product 
there's a habitat need. We can meet that habitat need, and essentially it's going to pay for itself and end up with some money in your pocket at the end of the day. So why would they want to work with you instead of just doing it all themselves? Well, many landowners do. Yeah. Many landowners do. And just as a general rule of thumb, if you're working with a consulting forester or a good reputable forester and they're putting your timber out for bid just as a general rule of thumb by working with a consulting forester or a group like RGS you're going to receive about 30 percent greater value on that timber working with a consulting forester or with the likes of RGS wow now now you got me wondering how how can you see those bigger jumps simply by working with a pro is it is, is it in the way it's marketed or uh, broader markets or what, how do you, how do you do that? Yeah. When you're working with a professional consulting forester, they, they're telling, they're your agent as yeah. the landowner. Okay. So they're telling you exactly what that timber is worth and then they're putting it out for a competitive bid process. Sure. Now, what ha- could happen often happens on the other side is you're just approached by somebody that's yeah. not your representative, but representing a mill. There you go. They're offering you a price. And many times people say, that's a lot of money for that timber. I'll oh, take it. Yeah. It's the, yeah, it's having the guys who write the Kelly blue book on your side when you're trying to sell your truck. Sure. And, and not to say that there aren't many uh, very reputable procurement foresters. I call many of them good friends, but as a general rule, when you're working with a consulting forester that's your agent as the landowner, you're just going to end up uh, a little better off in your price. Wow. That's eye-opening, mind-boggling, forehead-slapping, all of the above. Uh, We got more of that to come. That's Ben Jones, the president and CEO of the Rough Grouse Society and the American Woodcock Society. I'm Scott Linden. This is the Upland Nation podcast. We'll be back to Ben in just a moment. First off, I'll remind you that we are brought to you in part by sageandbreaker.com. If you're looking for gun cleaning and gun care equipment as well as some of the storage stuff for all of that equipment and your really valuable shotguns heirloom quality gun cases among other things i've been bragging about my uh, modifiable bore cleaning kit it is everything i need and so convenient learn more about it at sageandbreaker.com yeah it's one of those snaky kind of things but some of the pieces are detachable so depending on how you need to clean your gun muzzle to breech you can do it with all the components of that modifiable modifiable bore cleaning kit get on the mailing list you'll find out about the sales before everybody else and the new products as well it's all at sage and breaker.com and hopefully we're back with ben jones with the rough grouse society and the american woodcock society ben are you still with me or did you run away based on my last question you still got me. I'm all fired up. <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm intrigued, of course. As I said, I, I kind of came of age amongst the logging culture. And, uh, you know, it just starts to make all sorts of sense. You guys, do, you ever, anybody around there ever use the term entrepreneurial conservation? Yeah. I, you know, there, there's just, it's really fun 
for me working with our forest conservation directors because, um, like I said, getting forest habitat work done is something I've been steeped in for a couple decades. And to have this team together and we get together at least once a month, just all of us kind of brainstorming the issues and trying to figure it out, um, it really is that kind of entrepreneurial, innovative spirit that comes with, and there's just this kind of uh, a real natural pragmatism with people that are drawn to forestry as well. Always just, a, all right, there's some way we can do this. How yeah. can we get it? You know, you know, that's an interesting perspective, and you're absolutely right. Somebody who, is, who knows how to start a chainsaw and use it safely, it's a different, yeah. atti- it's a different attitude uh, than a lot of folks out there. But how do, you, how do you meld that with the science, with the biology, I guess I'll call it? Um, yeah, yeah. Well, there's always a need for more science. We'll never know everything there is to know. Like I said, we've got 60 years of good science that says – Uh, We need to diversify our forests through management. So we're working on that. But there are other things that we need to learn more about, Um, not the least of which is how novel diseases like West Nile virus impact rough grouse and other game birds. So the way we're looking at that science is we've got incredible land-grant universities, other academic institutions that this is their business model, man. This is what what they do. We've got incredibly talented research scientists that work with the state wildlife agencies. So we're looking to them to frame up with them some of the research questions and then find ways that we can fund them doing the research. So instead of us um, having research biologists on staff per se, we're making sure we're funding and we're partnering with those academic institutions and agencies that have biologists on staff to continue with that research because we'll never know everything and we need a constant information flow back in you know just a pet peeve of mine and and check me on this but um you look at some of the especially western species that were introduced and are now big game bird uh attractions whether it's pheasants or even chuckers Mm-hmm. <clears throat> they're getting uh, less and less love from the bio- biology community at this, you know, at state agencies because they've been introduced, and obviously, they've got a whole bunch of excuses for not doing much uh, to support or even research those gr- birds. But what about on the on the native side? I mean, you're talking about two birds that are iconic and native to parts of the United States. Do you see a different attitude uh, amongst the, you know, the state agencies in that regard? Um, they are iconic. And just to pile on with some of that, I mean, you've got the king of game birds. You've got woodcock that is nothing like it in the world. And both of these, there's no alternative to the wild birds. Rough grouse refuse to be raised in captivity. So, you know, there's no option for put and take. Our only options to keep rough grouse and woodcock populations healthy is to manage them as wild populations. So that to me is just, uh, it's pretty unique and um, it's a pretty cool endeavor. Now with working with state wildlife agencies, where do grouse and woodcock fall on priority lists? Especially when, man, think about deer hunting, elk hunting, turkey hunting and as far as their user groups um 
you know, they have to think about their business model too and what most of their user groups are interested in, especially if you have something like CWD that impacts all of us as mm-hmm. hunters. Mm-hmm. Um, they've got a lot of challenges. So it's up to us as the Rough Grouse Society to say, we get it. You've got a lot of competing things you need to take care of. We appreciate that. We get it. We also understand the importance of good deer management just for the future of hunting. So work with us as a partner. We understand you're understaffed, say, on your um, wildlife management areas. We can secure some funding. We can help hire staff, whether the Rough Grouse Society staff, and we just have them working on WMAs. So we're not just pointing the finger saying, you need to do more with grouse and woodcock, but going forward and saying, we're here as a partner to help you get that work done. And there was an example just this morning where the ink is still wet on an agreement where we're working with a state agency that lost some staffing on their state wildlife management areas. They lost forestry staffing. So they're behind in getting their forest management done. So we came together with them to co-fund a position to get that staffed back up. So we wanna be part of the solution, not part of the problem or just finger pointing when we're working with our state agency partners. And the same with federal agencies, especially the Forest Service. Mm-hmm. Let's, um, let's cap off the, the conversation part, the conservation part of the conversation. that's tricky man don't don't make those two i couldn't have done that on a monday that's for sure um if you if you had to look in your crystal ball or look down range two three five years what are the things that are highest priority for the rough grouse society and american woodcock society oh yes so um we want to keep growing our capacity to help partners get more work done. And there's no single group that can do all of this alone. And we have fantastic partnerships with groups like our friends at Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever. There's a lot of overlap, especially if you look at Bob White Habitat and Woodcock Habitat. Mm -hmm. We work very closely with the American Bird Conservancy who through work done at Cornell and other institutions is really showing that these same diverse forests that mean so much to ruffed grouse mean the same thing to a whole diversity of, of songbird species. Sure. So the partnerships and continuing to build them is really important. We're going to have to continue to build capacity for our public agency partners, especially in the next three to five years. Well, right now, through the next five years when we look at the amount of federal funding that could be available that we can leverage for conservation work. So we're just going to have to keep on this trajectory that we're on and help our agency partners build capacity because rough grouse are listed as a species of greatest conservation need in 19 states. So they need this habitat work. They're in trouble. American woodcock are listed as a species of concern in 28 state wildlife action plans so we don't have time to waste dumb question but uh, we all sit back here as you know non-scientists non-biologists and wonder why you just can't trap them and transplant them somewhere else is that an opportunity or does does that fail too 
when you get to that point, I'll say this, you're behind the eight ball. Uh-huh. Your, your probability of success drops uh, substantially compared to if you still have some birds there and you work to create habitat to expand them. Okay. Once you cross that line to the birds are gone, we've got to make habitat and reintroduce them. Your probability of success goes down considerably. But the first thing you'll have to do is what you needed to do anyway before you lost them, which is make a bunch of habitat. Mm -hmm. So you can't just trap and transfer birds and dump them into suboptimal habitat and expect a good result. The, before you would do any of it, you would need to go in and do the habitat management that you needed to do in the first place before yep. you lost them. Yep. Yeah. May as well stay ahead of the curve. Whenever you can, absolutely. It's going to cost you far less and um, take far less effort to get there. Well, that's, that's the urgency right now, Scott. It really is. Yeah. So let's talk about that habitat and from a more practical standpoint. Uh, if I'm a rough grouse hunter and I'm uh, somewhere in rough grouse country, um, wh wh what is the ideal habitat look like? It's really about age class diversity. Uh -huh. And there's one of the founders of this rough grouse science and what we know about these birds was a guy, Gordon Gullion, mm -hmm. who worked up in northern Minnesota. And he really simplified this down to what we call a checkerboard approach. So rough grouse, we often associate them with the young forest stuff, you know, those two-inch around aspen poles that you cut down when you're swinging your shotgun and squeeze. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the one I have mounted up here. <laughs> the otter branch. Yeah. But it's not just the young forest. It's the interspersion of that young forest with older forest and middle-aged forest. And I often think about it as like blinking Christmas tree lights where you just keep managing and it's a shifting mosaic because young forest doesn't stay young forever. So you've got young forest now. You're managing the blocks adjacent. That's your next young forest. Your old forest is growing, and it's a constant shifting mosaic. So where you find rough grouse often is in those edges between the forest age transitions. Young forest adjacent to old forest, they're really one of those edge creatures. But the diversity is key. So in Aspen, it's various stages of Aspen in Wisconsin or Minnesota. Certain parts of Wisconsin, it's going to be more scrub oak type habitats. Mm -hmm. Here in Pennsylvania, it could be um, young northern hardwoods adjacent to older northern hardwoods or young oak. I have been reading up on western grouse habitat and have just been fascinated. There's a book, it's called Understated Elegance. I was just reading it this morning about rough grouse habitat in central Idaho. Mm -hmm. And it's talking about the importance of these hawthorn draws along creek bottoms. Amen to that, because that's yeah. where that's where I find them. And it's <laughs> fascinating that it's gotten to the point where it's it's almost accepted as gospel. But yeah. every bird I've killed has been within 50 yards of a hawthorn bush. Yeah, there you go. So wherever you're at, it's going to be that young growth, probably adjacent to some older growth, but you're going to need some thick cover. These uh, 
one statement in this book with older aspen is you don't find the grouse where you've got grass and wildflowers growing underneath the aspen trees. It's got to be dog hair thick. Oh, really? You, you've got to have that thick cover, just like in those hawthorn draws. It's it's that stem density that really provides the protective cover. From, they'll, get, they'll get out into those more open stands, but they need that cover close by. Avian predators? Absolutely. That, yeah. Yep, that's a, that's a big one for sure. And well, what are the what are they? I mean, they're the goshawks and and maybe a couple other mm -hmm. hawks and falcons. Uh, do the owls have much of an impact on those birds? Yeah, owls are such a generalist predator, as yeah. as are all hawks, really, and probably the most specialized predator on grouse, especially in like the boreal forests of Canada, would be goshawks. But even they eat a lot of other things. Mm -hmm. But um, yeah, all the. The avian predators, sometimes they get a little too much credit. And, yep, <laughs> they have an impact for sure. But if you've got some of that high stem density cover, rough grouse evolved with those avian predators, and they can get away from them pretty well. Well, let's go hunting then. We've we've defined some pretty good habitat, whether it's that stuff that I <laughs> poke around in and literally get poked by, um, yeah. or um, or out in northern Michigan or on the Upper Peninsula or anywhere else. Mm -hmm. um, if you were to kind of lay a strategy and, and you were at a place like that, you park the truck, you drop the tailgate, you're putting out your two and a half year old thirty six pound setter. Um, where are you going to go? How are you going to start your hunt? Oh, man, I'm going to start it, Scott, with some kind of a map. And uh, back in the day, this used to be whatever you could get a hold of, uh, a paper map, especially if it had timber harvest and their age mm -hmm. indicated on them. Mm -hmm. And, of course, these days there are lots of digital versions of that and a strong partner of the Rough Grouse Society is Onyx Maps. Uh, so they've got really good data layers that show you where those cuts are. So before I even get to a spot or before I pick which general spot I'm going, I'm looking on some kind of mapping software to figure out where those young forests are adjacent to older forests. And mm -hmm. that's where I'm going. And, and trying to find, okay, are there some old logging roads here? Is there a hunter walking trail, depending where you're at, that we can kind of start our mission from and then get a feel for the cover on the ground i do appreciate all the those wonderful uh old roads and and trails that y'all made for for somebody else that come in handy out there so much i i just love that idea we don't get it out here so uh we're walking uh, one of those old tote roads, for example, and we're at kind of an edge uh, between a younger and a slightly less young uh, forest. Uh, strategy beyond that? Yeah, well, depending, depending what the cover looks like, at that point, then I'm adjusting the dog. Yeah. And... This is the thing that is just uncanny about this current dog. She very naturally does that based on what the cover looks like. So if we're working along and we hit some more open stuff, I want her to start casting a little bit bigger. Mm -hmm. She'll naturally start to do that when she gets out into the mat, that more open cover. If we're in some thicker stuff, I want to keep her pretty well within 60. Mm -hmm. But 
with her at this point, there's really not even much communication. She's checking back to see where we're moving, and then she's adjusting her cast based on how open or tight the cover is. You got a bell on her, or are you following her with a GPS collar? Uh, I have a GPS collar on her, but also have just a really small, uh, little tinkly Swiss bell yeah. that she also wears. Yeah. I, I, I've always, you know, and I've done both. Uh, and my fundamental problem helped me through this. Ben Jones, the president of and CEO of the Rough Grouse Society and the American Woodcock Society, helped me figure out how a bell will help me when the dog goes on point. I have to have listened to it until the very moment that dog freezes up, right? <laughs> uh, that's, that's it, absolutely. My GPS, how quickly we become dependent on these things. But... Yeah. I lost signal the other day, and I'm like, oh, man, I better pay attention to that bell close. <laughs> <laughs> okay, good. So I'm not missing anything. Uh, yeah, that's yeah, just yeah. how it works, yeah. Um, you know, another part of our journey is always paying attention to to what food resources are there, especially this time of year. These birds are driven by their stomach. So if you have the opportunity to kill one, see what they're eating, but also paying attention to what they might be eating and if i'm looking over across the cover and i see a little grove of sumac or some hawthorns where i can see those red berries shining i'm gonna head that way and check it out and then wherever i'm finding birds at that point then i'm gonna keep looking for that thing of course yeah yeah it's, it's kind of like uh, fly fishing uh, it's almost the same approach and it, yeah. what, what are they eating you're listening to the Upland Nation podcast. I'm Scott Linden. I just reintroduced Ben. Uh, the guy knows his stuff. Now, Ben, if you were to pick one area of the country without giving us the latitude and longitude, um, where would you be going for one, Ruffies, two, Woodcock, any time of the season, and for what reason? Well... I would be right in my home state of Pennsylvania because it's my home state and I love it more than anywhere else. Uh, and it has good populations of both birds and it's, there's some home covers and I was telling somebody the other day, I don't, uh, other than on business, I don't really travel to hunt because I just haven't satiated myself or hunted all the covers near home yet. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, yep. Uh, but Pennsylvania is a really the Keystone State. They call it that for a reason. It's got a lot of really wonderful covers. There are grouse, woodcock here. Um, I tell you, I have fallen in love with northern Minnesota. When you hit a woodcock flight there, and the grouse numbers just are always pretty solid. That's a special place as well. Yeah, I can't agree more having experienced that and not been up to your neck of the woods, let alone further north up into that uh, northeast kingdom, but I got to do that oh. someday. Oh, there's another one. <laughs> oh, sorry. <laughs> All right, Pennsylvania, because it's my home and closest to my heart is number one. Uh, second place is just going to be a long list from northern Minnesota to the northeast kingdom to western North Carolina. You ever get down into uh, Louisiana for the woodcock in the late season? Since I lived down there, so I um, was at Mississippi State for a while doing research on turkeys. Uh, when I was in my early 20s and so had an opportunity to woodcock hunt down there when I got my first bird dog but haven't been back and that's been longer ago than I care to talk about 
and the same here. I would here. love to do it. Yeah, well, Billy, hey, if you're listening, Billy, uh, I'm still open to an an another invitation out there. So uh, I'm like you, Ben. I'd like to see that country a little bit more. So That's it, a good time of year, too, man. There's not much. Uh, things have wound down here in January yeah. and into February. So yeah, it's, it's, one, it's one of those arguments for going somewhere else at the end of the season, that's for sure. There we go. Yeah. Well, you know, uh, you've been around and you've you spent a lot of time with a lot of folks who have a lot of experience out there. If you were to give us a couple hunting tips for rough grouse or, or woodcock, but primarily rough grouse, because that's more more likely we're going to chase them. Mm -hmm. um, what are some of the things that come to mind right off? Um, know the cover. Uh, get a feel, really pay attention for where you're finding birds. And then just like a predator does, a, a fox or a raccoon or a hawk, they develop what in the biology world we call it a search image. Hmm. So the first time that young raccoon goes out and finds a grouse nest, it remembers kind of the conditions where it found that grouse nest or that hawk is starts hunting for grouse. Where am I finding the grouse? Develop your search image based on where you're finding them and if it helps you take some notes you can take a picture with your phone what that cover looks like um, and just be thoughtful about where you're finding birds and then keep trying to find more of that and the really fun part is whatever your choice in dog is get one of those <laughs> and then you've got your buddy and like that's just magic you, you know, people joke about it, but turning a dog into a grouse dog is a process, maybe half of its pride or something cockier than that. But <laughs> but is there any truth to the rumor that, you, you know, it'll take 500 birds for, the, for your young dog to become a grouse dog? Uh, it really depends on, it depends on the dog. But yeah, contacts are absolutely necessary. And it's really fun, and every dog is a little bit different, as you know, to watch how long it takes an individual dog to figure it out. And when you're hunting grouse and woodcock, for it to click it to them like, no, this is this bird. I can get this close to it. No, this is a rough grouse. I better do it this way. Uh -huh. <laughs> that's what's been so special about this little dog I have is she's kind of figured that out quicker than I might have expected and it's really fun to watch it come together for him. oh absolutely no doubt about it now you, 500's a lot man. I, know. I don't know where you gotta go <laughs> well that was probably from one of those old 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 books yeah way back in the day but i think there's a lot of ego involved in that stuff too you know hey right yeah, if, you, if, you, if you put a dog on 500 grouse i would i would hope they'll have it figured out by that or it's time to find a new breeder <laughs> maybe so yeah that's ben jones the president and ceo of the rough grouse society and the american woodcock society ben um always a pleasure glad thing you came glad you came out the uh, the other end of this whole wacky pandemic thing as strong as you did i'm uh, you know i'm just excited for the future for you guys and your organization and uh we'll do this again and uh, get caught up uh next milestone whenever you pass it so thanks for being a part of the upland nation podcast i really appreciate it i i enjoy the discussion about conversation conservation <laughs> <laughs> but yeah it's really good to talk with you uh and 
you know, this is all driven by our members and supporters. And like I said, it's people that just that love this every bit as much as we do. So it's a labor of love for all of us. Well, there you go. And that's why we're all here for one reason or another. We love some aspect or all of them. So uh, thanks again and have a great day. Thank you, Scott. Take care. The rest of you don't go away. We're going to talk about some of the issues that you think are critical that we focus on in the next year or two. Yeah, some of the really important stuff coming up on the Upland Nation podcast. I'm Scott Linden, and let me remind you that we are brought to you in part by Pointer Shotguns. I keep getting all sorts of great photos and uh, stories of his hunting. Andy McCormick is uh, the uh, senior VP and marketing guy there you've heard him on the show before but andy is an avid bird hunter and he's shooting those pointer semi-automatics most of the time some of them are cerakoted some of them are not some of them are woodstock some are uh, synthetic the guy knows what he's doing if you want to learn more about any of the guns there go to pointershotguns.com you'll find all the models there in all the colors yeah i can't believe i'm saying that about shotguns but they come in various colors now you can watch some videos and some articles by yours truly and learn all about the new stuff that's coming down the pike pointer shotguns they're a work of art at a price that's a thing of beauty learn more at pointershotguns.com So thank you if you've already responded, and if you haven't, uh, sure appreciate your going back and doing that. Dig up that email I sent you, asking you to participate in our annual Upland Nation survey. It's out now, and we'll be compiling the results for the next few weeks. Uh, but uh, try and get it over before Christmas if you can. I'd sure appreciate it. So far, so good. I ask one of the questions. What are the three most important issues facing upland hunting in the next five years? Hands down, there's only one that bubbles to the top, and it's way up there at the top, with almost 75% of you saying it's access and availability of public hunting ground. Well, if everybody does their part, uh, maybe we'll get some more of that happening. It's it's happening in places all over the country, and all we can do is support the efforts and maybe work towards more of them. Another issue, how best can hunters help maintain our tradition? Again, very obvious. You're all thinking along the same lines. Almost 69% of you say recruiting new hunters, taking them hunting. And then another 61% of you saying we need to boost the amount of private ground open to public hunting, whether it's CRP, walk-in, or related programs. Well, you can see where we're going, and you can see why we do things like the Fur Feathers Friends event and all of the folks who are doing that on the grassroots level all over the country right now. Thanks for your responses there as well. And uh, appreciate everybody's contributions to the recruiting side of things, whether it's an old friend, a new friend, uh, show off your dogs. Learn more about all that at FurFeathersFriends.com. Thank you all for commenting at your social media platforms and mine as well. 
if you left a rating or a review, it will probably result in a new listener, and I sure appreciate that. We're made possible by these fine sponsors, Sage and Breaker Gun Care Products, Pointer Shotguns, Mid-Valley Clays and Shooting School, and TrueLockChokes.com. Learn more about all of them right there, or join me at FindBirdHuntingSpots.com, where we have plenty of information on all the things you and I and everybody else loves to talk about. I'm Scott Linden. Thanks for listening. Until next time, see you in the field.